0: hi everybody welcome once again to the who are you podcast hello everybody we're back with episode two with dr charles meekin oncologist come on in check it out let's pick up where we left off i say all powerful movements start from a
1: story of of love and pain and our company care oncology certainly reflects that uh robin bannister was a strong phd pharmacist that developed new drugs in england he had already had a few drugs on his belt he was brilliant at repurposing of drugs, which is sort of like, you know, going to an antique show and finding something of great value. He took drugs that were indicated for one thing, and most drugs have four to six molecular pathways of activity. So they have secondary and tertiary and other activities. And we have many examples like that, like minoxidil that grows hair, originally a blood pressure medicine, Viagra, you know, sexual aid originally for for blood pressure and pulmonary hypertension. So, he, his wife had stage four breast cancer at the time in 2013. She was given uh, only options for hospice as she had burned through the common therapies. And um, Robin said, Ginny, I think I could help you with some strategies to, to help fix this. And she said, yes, but only if we do it for someone bigger than myself and put a, a protocol around it. So he went to work and he assimilated more than 200 drugs to a hundred to ten, and nobody can take ten full drugs because of yeah. you know c- cross side effects, and he, he weaned it down to four two that are used all the time, and two that are used generally in alternation and These four drugs were given to his wife, and she lived four and a half years. She used these alone. Uh, we generally advocate they 're used with standard of care because if you 're using metabolic therapy with other targeted therapies, you know, anti-metabolite therapies, hormonal therapies, radiotherapies, you're really going to attack that cancer in many ways and hopefully fix it. But she uh, ended up living four and a half years. And during that time, they further validated the the four drugs by really choosing a tough target. They chose glioblastoma. And we all know that that's the brain tumor that, um, for instance, killed John McCain and uh, Ted Kennedy uh, I mentioned Ted Kennedy before, and there 's a bit of irony that he was there at the at the initial of the war against cancer. is this carter 's problem too? Uh, no, he has metastatic melanoma to the brain okay, but, uh, okay These are people who start with the brain tumor the you know Harvey Cushing described this cancer ninety years ago as generally has about eight to nine month median survival in my lifetime still is a in the last 30 years of cancer care, that was about the median survival. There was an increment when we got a little better with radiation. There was an increment when we added something called Temadar, you know, the best results in the literature about 13 to 14 months. And 13 is what John McCain lived. And 14 is what Ted Kennedy lived. They didn't agree on much politically, but they agreed on one thing. Glioblastoma is a, is a bummer. So uh, uh, they, we we tested it with 95 patients with glioblastoma. We wanted to have a hundred, but a few were actually tossed out because they were under 18. And they did standard of care with these four drugs. And the four drugs are are all generic now, but have great activity metabolically against cancer. And uh, despite not starting the drugs until seven months on average into their treatment, so they didn't even get it during the window of time of radiation and most of the chemotherapy. They still had a 28-month median survival, a more than doubling of the best survival in the literature, and, and a 58% two-year survival. And uh, I never saw many people get beyond a year, year and a half, even in the last five, eight years of my career working in the Charlotte area. So this was a big impact, and we've since republished that in an abstract form uh, where we looked at, we, we made sure that there was no kind of, you know the healthy, a, a healthy uh, uh, protocol bias, uh, participant bias. So you know we compared it with three other people from the you know from the National Health Care of England, and. Um, all three had matched age and tumor resection status and chemotherapy status, and it still showed a more than doubling of the median survival. And now we have 350 in that cohort, and we're soon to publish that. But soon after that, we, we started treating all different types of cancer and brought it over to the U.S. in 2018, and I joined as their medical director in, uh, in 2019. Uh, and so uh, now we've treated about, 2,500 to 3,000 in the U.S. Uh, we're we, before before the pandemic. We were a virtual panel, and now we are definitely a virtual panel. We cover all the U.S. and part of Canada, and we, we our parent company calls, covers all of Europe, and we have startups and other continents.
0: I won't bore you with, but. You just, no, it's not, none of this is boring. You're just bringing up so many thoughts. I mean, you mentioned virtual. This is all good news, what I hear. This is Mm -hmm. good stuff. It's interesting, but, and I'm an optimist. I mean, I've had cancer in the family, two brothers, father-in-law. You mentioned that. Die of it. Yeah, one survived, one died. But it seems to me like in the last 10 years, so many people I know versus the the first 80% of my life are dying of cancer, getting cancer, like it's a common cold. But here's, The question I do want to ask you, why does it seem like it's so more prevalent or is it just a day and age we're in where information is so accessible and percentage-wise there really isn't any change? I want to know that. Big question here is, isn't lung the biggest killer in the country? Yeah. I don't know anyone. I don't know a soul with lung cancer. Fortunately, not a lot. But right off the top of my head, in the last two years, two two friends died of pancreatic cancer. Yeah, yeah. that's
1: that's on the rise. And and lung cancer is the biggest killer, not the most common in men and women. The I, most see, common in I see. Women is breast, and men yeah. and prostate. Prostate. And uh, you're right. Um, it, it's a conundrum. And and you know, in my career, I started at times, and I don't want to say this in a negative way, but there are times when I felt like I was in the theater of the absurd because you know I'm I'm witnessing. Cancer treatments are really harsh and more than 50% of the time they fail. It's always inconvenient and it's bankrupting in its expense level. Medical healthcare bankruptcy from cancer care is the number one cause of bankruptcy. Finally, too, it fostered other chronic diseases, you know, if you survive the treatment, you you could injure organs that would lead to greater risk of heart disease, neurovascular disease, or second cancers. We touched upon that, you know, depending on whether you had a lung cancer or a, you know, a prostate cancer, but the risk of second cancer is probably in the 20 to 40% range. So, it's, it's a real number that's coming at you. And then finally, you know, we send people off for follow-up and say, you know, we're going to see you every month. Or every two months or three months, we don't have real good things to find it other than we find it, you know, and and then it's, you know, more bad news. We don't have a good way to prevent it. From coming back, so there are some maintenance therapies out there, and and you know that are evolving with some of the targeted therapies. So that's why those five pain points really led me to come out of retirement, uh, you know, to join Karen College because I thought they addressed those. Number one, our our treatment is metabolic; it are four generic drugs that work metabolically, or more or less, to disrupt the energy production in the cancer cell, or, or more or less, starve cancer cells. And and these drugs are are easy to tolerate. This goes along great with standard of care because it makes everything work better. Number two, the drugs have low side effects. In our metrics trial, I just talked about only one in 10 had to stop any one of the four drugs and they were getting, you know, treatment for brain tumors. Number three, um, the drugs are are low cost and through our partnership pharmacy, uh, they're, they're generic, but we have a patent on their novel use. We mainly got that the black you know, a big company from jumping in and figuring this out and making it real expensive. But we, we have a patent on their novel use and we use two compounding pharmacies to get the medications to people's doorstep in two to four days at a cost of, you know, for the physician service and the, the pharmaceutical cost of less than $200 a month uh, for the first year and probably less than $160 a month for the second year. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And and finally, these four drugs, you know, diminish other chronic medical good conditions like heart disease, which is the number one killer neurovascular disease. And and we have incredible data that will also reduce risk of second cancers or new cancers. And that's going to be care oncology's big play is in prevention. And I can talk about that in a minute. But yeah, but I definitely uh, so want to talk about that. That's prevention. our big goal is a, a strategy in addition to treatment is prevention. So there's incredible data on these drugs because one of our drugs uh, is is the second most common used drug in adults in America. The second is the fourth and the third is the 113th and the, the fourth one is less used, uh, but all of them reduce when they've you know, been looked at in, in animal models, they reduce incidence of cancer. The biggest trial was um, out of Taiwan where they looked at 70,000 people, uh, Dr. Wang's trial that had, um, uh, had uh, hepatitis, which is a known
0: risk factor for getting liver cancer and multiple yeah. other cancers. My brother had hepatitis. The one who who passed from liver cancer, he had that. Um, yeah, yeah. Suspect, so it's, we suspect it's a, he got it from a blood transfer. We had he had a transfusion some years earlier.
1: So yeah, that's it's, it's a bad you know roll of the dice to get hepatitis because it impacts your immune system and surveillance. So anyway, in this seventy thousand cohorts, if you happen to be on one of our drugs, which is metformin your risk of reduction was significant. If you happen to be on a statin, your risk of reduction was significant. Wow! And there was 5,000 people that were on both. And so, that's a pretty good number. And they looked at the incidence of like 10 different common cancers. And the reduction in cancer incident was as low as 25% to as high as 78%. So, there was a massive reduction over the common risk of cancer by just taking those two medications. So we use these four drugs and uh, our big play is to work in concert with a partner that we are in deep negotiations with now. So they're they're a a new company, but are listed, so I can't mention their name. And they have a, a very novel blood biopsy that looks at eight biometric markers. They're RNA markers. They kind of look at your body's response to what's going on in the body. And there's sort of an early detection model. And if you're making a bunch of inflammatory drivers, it can pick that up. And therefore it knows that you're either in the fight against an early proposition of cancer or other chronic medical conditions. And so, they published at ASCO this year, this past May, and they were able to differentiate with very good predictive value and sensitivity, specificity uh, between 10 different types of cancer. So our our working plan is to use that biometric marker. Uh, you'll get a green light for you're pretty clean, to a you know amber light that you got some action going on, to a red light to probably we need to go back and do traditional screening. And then we will use our four drugs for two weeks, and then five supplements for 10 weeks, and repeat that cycle for four times through the year, and then repeat the blood biopsy at the end of the year, and then repeat that going on. And then we'll first offer this to high risk individuals like people with a strong family history, BRCA1, BRCA2, uh, Lynch syndrome with colorectal, people who are firemen or pilots that have high risk, and then other people that are the worried well that just say, I got a family history. It's not really discernible but something's going on and we need to I need to get on something be, be other than the watch and wait and let me get it and then we'll try to fix it
0: which is our current model. Are are you saying uh I'm a type 2 diabetic? So I take metformin and I take atorvastatin, which is basically Bingo. Lipitor. So are you saying that type two is out there? There may be an upside to type two. Okay. Are you saying metformin and generic Lipitor are down drivers of cancer? Yes. Yes. So that? I
1: mean, um, so I mean, there's a lot of drivers with proliferation, and, and the big one is mTOR. Uh, which it downregulates. The other one is AMP kinase, which is sort of the the conductor in the cell that modulates energy usage, and it it properly upregulates that to better in a frugal way use energy in the cell. And then um, there's a big thing that is kind of the first step of glycolysis called hexokinase two, and and cancer cells have a, a mutant form of that. And hexokinase two is usually the the step where, in the Krebs cycle, you you go from like a six six carbon sugar to pyruvate and then a three carbon pyruvate, and then it it uh, is, enters the cell and when you need energy, that get, then jumps into the Krebs cycle. However, with a flawed hexokinase two, you uh, you know that sort of monitoring device is just removed and that flywheel just opens and pyruvate builds up and it goes to lactic acid. And, and that's why you have you know, an acidic environment. But um, so, yeah, there's a lot of flaws that these two impact. And the reason we know that is because, you know, as I said, metformin is the fourth most common drug. Statins, atorvastatin is the second most common, not just statins, but atorvastatin. And so we have this data that says, wow, why did all these type 2 diabetics do better with their prostate cancer, breast cancer, you know, ovarian cancer, lung cancer. Then we kind of peel back another layer and say, well, this one didn't do better. And they, you know, they were not on metformin. They were on something else. Uh, And this one did do better and they were on metformin. And so now I could probably bring to you 20 studies that have that sort of feedback. So, yeah, it's exciting. I would say stay on those drugs even if you think your type 2 has improved. Maybe don't skip it when you're doing a big weightlifting day because it will <laughs> downlift. You know, mTOR is important when you want to add muscle, and there's probably some slight muscle inhibition uh, during, you know, with the, with the metformin use. It's probably primarily liver and its function, but
0: uh, there can be a little spillover to the muscle. Here's another thing about metformin that blew me away. Other medicines are very expensive. Some are not so. Uh, Zetia is very expensive if you don't have insurance. Uh, Lipitor is not so much. But I'd get my metformin and I'd get like three vials of like a thousand pills in it for like 10 bucks. You bet. And, I'd, and I'd, go, I'd go, how can this be so cheap? I mean, I don't get this. I mean, this, this is nothing. And so I, I looked it up. I said, what, well, what is metformin? French lilac? French lilac, French yeah. lilac. So, so why? So now I know why it's so cheap because it's it's really a supplement. So I go. So, well, why am I not just buying it off the shelf at Costco? Well, because it turns out that metformin is pharmaceutical grade, high level purity, medically prescribed French lilac, and there are probably some other properties to yeah, it that it I'm not aware of. Yeah, it have an extended release to extended make it more release, smoother availability. But effectively, it it is a natural supplement. It's not a synthetic. They discovered it because goats, I think in France or wherever these goats were, would eat this stuff, French lilac, and their blood sugar would drop. Their blood sugar would drop. And I don't know how they figured this out. I think the goats were like quiet and not as active as they should be when their blood sugar was low so they go well what's wrong with my goat and they pull the they pull the blood out they'd look at it and I'd go damn the blood sugar is too low and they figured out that this was french lilac they were eating and so oh, the progression. story yeah so the progression goes you can look this up it's true that's why it's so cheap it's been around for an awful long time treating blood sugar problems in the form of what they call like goat's rue it lowers their blood sugar but they don't need lower blood sugar so yeah. they call it goat's rue but that was fascinating when i that's yeah. why um, a, that's, a lot of good
1: things come from nature and yeah and, uh, yeah. and it, it these I, I told you the first two main i i could send you a diagram that looks like a new york city transit station you know map that shows all the sub blockings and going on of, of our four drugs and uh, all the references that support that and now granted um we have now seven years of sort of physician knowledge and we have a center of excellence we call the metrics where we store all our metabolic. Um, you know, archives of literature and videos and onboarding for nurses and doctors. And, and, um, we just brought on a gynecologic oncologist this last month who's brilliant and he's also boarded in, uh, integrative oncology. And so we, we we're trying to be a virtual platform that can offer metabolic therapies and be very, you know, versed in all the current literature on this, um, we patients come up with a lot of questions on how to prioritize things. They're maybe doing some supplements that might be deleterious. We 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 inter, intervene with discussions on what's the latest we know on intermittent fasting and how to manage that with your cancer. We have uh, the foremost uh, author on on keto for cancer, Miriam Kalemian, is is part of our team, and we're rolling out a nutrition program that will sort of support because uh, patients are really asking for that and you know it always was crazy to me that the 22 nci sponsored cancer centers had no consistent recommendation on diet other than eat a good standard american diet which as you know is a sad diet standard american diet and it's uh, the pyramid should be the other way not yeah. uh you know yeah. yeah i grew up with it the, 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 the thin part not yeah. the uh, no. not no. the no. fat part but yeah. um so, yeah, so our, our, we, I think we're filling an important space. It energizes me every day. Uh, having done a, a year of entrepreneurial study last year at Notre Dame, uh, where I went to undergrad, it really enlightened me of some of the struggles uh, a startup company has. And now that, you know, I'm sort of living it, I, I really, you know, they were right, you know, there was, you pivot and weave and duck and twirl three times a week. Um, but in the end, I think... Uh, our team is mainly old oncology doctors and nurses and survivors, and we feel we're more than just sort of a strategy to make some dough. We're, we're trying to help lead a movement that will start and continue an important conversation for our brothers and sisters with cancer to help you know make their lives better and make
0: them longer as well. All right let me jump away then again for a second here from this discussion and Point out a couple more, what I think are really interesting things about you. I have a current doctor in the family. My uncle was a doctor, radiologist, by the way. He died of cancer. His wife died of cancer. Um, But you are. They were nothing like you. I loved them. I loved them all. I mean, my my cousin who's a doctor, he's alive and well, and he's an interesting story in himself. Uh, My uncle uh, was just a great guy, but he certainly didn't have your background. He wasn't out hiking and challenging mountains. And like you, he loved mathematics and that you loved math and you love physics too. That's a really interesting subject (laughs) matter. I mean, physics is not something that most, I love physics too. Astrophysics astrophysics mm-hmm. is what blows me away. And I strongly recommend the first chapter in a book called a short history of nearly everything. You don't have to go through the whole book, but I guarantee you if you read the first chapter, you won't put the book down. And it's oh, I all saw that book recently. Oh my God. Just, yeah. just go to the first for you. You're going to go out of your mind reading that first. You don't have to mm-hmm. go anywhere else. The whole chapter is about the whole book is about chapters of things. The guy didn't know about, and he wanted to know more about it. And so what he did is he went to people like you. He went to the experts in the world on each subject that he was interested in, did years of research and distilled it down into layman terms so that we could understand astrophysics and oncology and cancer and the cloaking and the Klingon cloaking and and all that stuff. So I recommend it. I always tell everybody, if if you don't like the first chapter, you're not going to like the whole book. Uh, But there's also a whole section on the human body, the mind and body relationship. These are two distinct vehicles doing two distinctly different things. You can talk to your body, your body can talk to your mind. but. My takeaway is, and this is a total segue here, that you got a a mind doing its thing, and you got a body doing its thing, and your body is just a host to carry your mind around and get things done in your life. It's a much longer, deeper discussion about exactly what can the mind really do, I mean really do, to heal you, or does your body just heal you on its own, no matter what you think in your mind? But you're into math, you're into physics, you charge up and down tough mountains You're healing people. You're working with people. You're teaching to think in the moment. You're a Stanford guy. You're a Notre Dame guy. You're an intellect. You're highly educated. You get all these interesting things going on. A lot of really successful, bright minded people read Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich. It was a book that changed my life at the time that I read it. You're a think and grow rich guy. The the biggest problem with the book Think and Grow Rich to me is the title. title. I don't know Here I don't go. know why he named it Think and Grow Rich, because it sounds like another one of those books on the shelf where if you put in the right thinking methodologies, you'll grow rich. And it's totally, yeah. totally not like it's much more complex. It is an important book. Everybody should read it. You read it. You know, sometimes you you get to these things. You're like, how did this happen? You know,
1: Napoleon Hill, as you said, the title is the worst part about it. It's it's really a book about how you can. It sounds a little woo woo. You can
0: help create your it own. It does sound woo woo, but it's not. It's not. It's grounded and in, in no nonsense. You and yeah. me chat.
1: And it and it it aligned with you know I was catholic kid growing up and i actually was very you know i was really touched by sort of a some sort of mission to help people and thought about doing that I, I didn't want to be a parish priest but i actually thought pretty hard about being a Glen Mary missionary they would the people we met when we went down to appalachia uh from cincinnati and and uh, that to me looked like a very compelling but my dad was such a wonderful guy i knew i had to ultimately i realized i had to be a father so i you know,
0: went on to college, but, um, Oh, let me so just throw one real quick. Let me just add to this. You studied economics. It doesn't end with you. I mean, every, every yeah. time I flip a page, it's like, ah, oh, okay. He did that too. So I, I, my dad was a businessman and he, he was, he loved kids.
1: And so I thought, well, I, my dad's happy. Maybe I'll try economics. And then, uh, you know, I said, well, I love to be in the healing world. I love to put medicine on people's knees. So, uh, uh, thought about that way but i'd already done the martial arts and whatnot and i knew that there was more than the physical to healing and and medical work and um you know napoleon hill's work on setting intentions and creating your dreams you know i can look back and say you know when i my brothers and i my two brothers went to the fitness club with my dad we'd watch you know, Notre Dame football, and that was, everybody talked about that, and someday I said, gee, I'd like to go to Notre Dame someday, and then there was Stanford on a few times, and they had Plunkett, the quarterback that won the Heisman Trophy. I was like, wow, that looks like a good school. I want to go there someday. Sure enough, you know, I kind of put those, I anchored those dreams and then pursued them, And uh, my sister says, too, (laughs) I wrote a kindergarten essay about how someday I
0: want to be a doctor and heal people. I don't remember that, but she says she has copies of it. I, I'm not surprised to hear that because it, at the very beginning, we go back an hour in this conversation, you know, we could hear the love, the empathy, the sympathy, whatever we want the caring. See, it goes all the way back to your childhood. It's in your blood. It was there from the beginning, just like an artist's calling yeah. to play music is there from the beginning. So that's why I tell kids and
1: I love being around kids. I just spent a year with 56 56- mid 20 year olds. That was a great year. I said, you got to set those anchors. You got to set those intentions and, and that will kind of leverage it to the next level. And uh, so as that filtered through, um, you know, once again, studying some Eastern medicine, when I was at Stanford, we had a lot of stuff going on in San Francisco. They had a spirit of medicine uh, lecture series that I tried to go down to, and they had courses associated with that. You know, my work, led toward end of life. I, I focused on not just active treatment. My dad died of prostate cancer and I managed him for his final eight months because I was between my first job and my second job. And that really taught me the hands-on work of cancer caregiving. You know, is 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 brutal as just helping carrying him changing his diapers that he was losing everything at the time. And, and, uh, but making it easier for my mom who needed to be a, a a wife, not a caregiver. And, uh, and, and now we're going that with through that with my mom, with my families, and we're making sure our, our nieces and nephews, and my kids get to see it because that's, you know that's probably an important lesson you don't get in
0: school or learn from a textbook i just want to uh really validate that it's important for people to see it cuz i watched my brother's friends because they were frightened become less available to him as he dwindled away and and eventually you know died yeah practically in my arms, because it frightened them. And even maybe a family member of two, it's important to see these people through all the way to the end, to be there and, and, and be an adult about it. And especially for kids to see it, because it's part of life. I'm so glad that you're bringing kids into it and that they should see it. They, they need to see it. Oh, some of them have stepped up in an amazing way. And
1: I always say, you know, what do you do? You, you get close and you sit there and you be present with them.
0: You know, that's that's that's, it, that's all you it. need to do. There's nothing magic you can say. You just said that beautifully. Be present with them. Just just be there, and they feel that. I always say that. Don't discount these little detours that we all make in life,
1: because that will contribute later on to some special gift you bring to the table for you know maybe what you're ultimately meant to do, and uh, you know that time working and you know a house painter time. Uh, you know played. Tennis my first year at Notre Dame, which helped a lot with teamwork. But I, after a year, I knew I wasn't going to like get a major scholarship or or I was going to have to commit a lot of time. And that's when I decided, if, you know, that I was probably going to go pre med. And I did some hospital work that really resonated with me. But um, just all those experiences, in fact, I would say sometimes a non pre med pathway to med school is probably the best training because you'll get some tools you can use, and what you learn in med school you can. You, you know, what you do in pre-med, you'll learn in med school. So, uh, I think the the liberal arts pathway is, is very important. So, so, I was very lucky to kind of just bounce around and have some great experiences. I learned real all, early on that, yes, the mind can be in charge of the body, and, but ultimately, the most important driver of, of good direction it emanates from the heart. And so we all need to kind of get out of our heads. Head's good for navigation. I totally agree with you. We get into our heart to make those important decisions. And as a cancer doctor, especially in the second half of my career, maybe post 45, I really understood that. And there were times where I felt like I knew the answer and it was hard for me to convince other colleagues who are sharing the care of this patient where they needed to go because objectively it wasn't there but um so that's where you just keep digging for more information and try to kind of put it in a framework they could understand but as is as sometimes as you, you know when you really get tuned into that um being present you can really pick up more through our our just physical sense uh, of being there i would try to have a a doorknob sort of you know, step where I, before I walked into the door, I would do three relaxation breaths. So despite the rush of what I'd just been through, maybe, yeah. I would go back into a sort of a, a place of, uh, of listening and uh,
0: where I could absorb and be present A lot of professionals people. that are in intense professions like you do that. Before they go yeah. into the next meeting, they, they they just left a really sad or intense or, or uh, let's just say, overwhelmingly challenging a situation that that you have to lead and uh, before they walk through the next door they stand outside they take maybe five minutes sometimes and breathe and talk themselves down maybe mm-hmm. a quick meditation and then go into the next meeting because what you're doing is so intense yeah as well as um patients are so understanding you know if you had to be a little late but you acknowledge
1: that that it was not because you're had your te- you know, feet up on the table in the doctor's lounge watching the big screen or something uh you were you know, helping a fellow cancer patient, as well as uh, you know, getting to know everybody in the room, having a routine, uh, getting in everybody's name, you know, laying a hand in pre-COVID days on everybody, and uh, and then sitting down where you were sort of in an even rapport, and then everybody that I saw always got brought around to my office. There was never any sort of. Uh, you know assessment and planning decisions made in the clinical exam room we went back to where we had better parity in the in, in my office where they can see me as a person you know i had pictures up and obviously a few mountain climb pictures and you know some some religious stuff and and um you know pictures of my family and stuff so it felt more like they're talking to a friend than you know,
0: somebody that, uh, you know, had some white coat factor with them. And that's it for episode two. Come on back. we got an episode three for you. You've been listening to the Who Are You podcast, brought to you by Biotropic Labs, sports performance supplements for people who move. Join us next time for another edition of the Who Are You podcast.